Okay. All right, we're up and running. All right, that said then, let's roll. Um, I want to start today. Um, what we were talking about last time is that Alma has been pinned down at Zarahemla. He's the high priest. And um, so now he's out doing this revival. And he starts in Zarahemla. And now it, now the wave continues. Now he moves forward. And so let's, let's hop over to Alma 8. Um, Okay, uh, he returns to the land of Gideon, uh, then he's going to go over into the land of Melek, uh, then he's going to go, when he finishes work at Melek, verse 6, uh, departed thence, three days journey into the land of Melek, to a Canaan city which was called Ammonihah. Now, I think it's kind of fascinating that he really wants you, Mormon really wants you to know. Who founded Ammonihah? It was the custom of the people of Nephi to call their lands and their cities and their villages, even their small villages, after the name of him who first possessed them. And thus it was the land of Ammonihah. Therefore it was settled by Ammonihah. Dang it. We need you to know that. Now, I... Wait a minute, where's my speculation booth? Okay, here... This is speculation over here, right? Do you know what the city that when he gets rejected out of Ammonihah, where's the next city he was about to go to? No, not Gideon. Aaron. Interesting that he's going to the city of Ammonihah and he's going then he's going to go to the city of Aaron. What are the what are the names of the sons of Mosiah? Ammon and Aaron. Yeah, and Omni and Hymner. Okay. Is it possible that Ammon in his wild days, uh, either he or his son may have settled Ammonihah if the next city is Aaron? Don't know. But in their wild days, what they're going to preach when we start talking about the Nahors today is that it could have been very close to what the Nahors were teaching anyway. Know Christ, uh, get as rich as you can kind of thing. Who knows? It could be in some ways related. But anyway, now, nine. Satan had gotten great hold of their hearts of the people of Ammonihah. They would not hearken. Verse 10, Nevertheless, Alma labored with much spirit, wrestling with God in mighty prayer, that he would pour out his spirit among the people that were in the city. Now, let's stop for a sec. Just as a template, this is a mighty prophet. He's wrestling in prayer. He's praying for a group of people that he might be able to teach. The result should be what? Did I say this was a mighty prophet? Yes. And he was wrestling in prayer. And he was fasting a lot. And he had great faith. What should happen? They should be converted. Right? That's how this works. What if, we, what if I said, you are a mighty parent. You have wrestled mighty in the spirit. You have fasted many days for your kids. Therefore, the result should be what? What if you are a mighty bishop and you've wrestled in prayer and and the spirit and you're praying for a group of people and you have great faith, what should be the result? People have agents. Let's go back to the faith thing that you earned on Saturday night. Mm -hmm. There were two things that faith could not do. I think it was was President Uchtdorf, wasn't it? Yes. There were two things that faith could not do. One was... Change somebody's agency. And number two, change the will of God. Faith has limitations. It does. And this is one of those moments when we're hearing very clearly, he labors much in the Spirit, he wrestles with God in mighty prayer, nevertheless, they harden their hearts. And their response is, Verse 11, we are not of thy church, we do not believe in such foolish traditions. And this is because we are not of thy church. By the way, we're not of thy church. We just thought you should know. And we're going to talk about their church in just a second. 
But, uh, but before we leave this, I just want to take just a second. Tell me what it means to wrestle. Struggle. Pour out your heart. You pour out your heart. In your head, you're conducting a battle. Yeah, there is a battle. There's a wrestle going on inside your head. Now, we have this wonderful... Where we, we have two other wrestlings that we know of right off the top of our head in Scripture. Where are they? Enos. Enos was a wrestler. <laughs> and Jacob in the Old Testament. Now, let's go back to what we just said about faith. Faith is, so if we're going to wrestle with God, can we wrestle Him into believing what we want Him to believe? No. Can we wrestle Him into doing what we want Him to do? No. So what's the wrestling? Why are we wrestling with somebody that our faith won't change Him and our faith won't change somebody else's will? What, where are we, what are we wrestling about? Change the people's hearts. You're wanting them to change their hearts. So you're wrestling with God and say, bring somebody into their life, change them, do something. To change your own will. Where is the wrestle? In your own heart. Does that make sense? And probably ask yourself, could I have done something different? Yeah, a lot of times in my office, I hear verb, I hear like emotional gymnastics. You know, people really kind of really wrestling with what should I have done? What could I have done? How come I didn't? What what happened here? What I, Jody, you never hear that in your office. <laughs> she laughs. Okay. Yeah. Does that mean even when we desire to do things righteous, righteous? But the, the desire still, if it's not God's will, we will still facing the wrestle. Even the desire is righteous. Our desire, yeah, that wrestling is really our own desires, isn't it? And what are we wrestling to come to know? God's will. Now, Deb, why would that be the wrestle? Wouldn't it be very easy to say, look, God is really smart. He's smarter than me. He knows more than I do. Why don't I just find out what he wants and life gets better? Why is that a wrestle? Because it doesn't always get better. <laughs> it doesn't always get better? Sometimes, sometimes there are trials ahead. But I have labored in the Spirit. I've wrestled with God in mighty prayer. Dang it, it's supposed to get better. It's a, that's how it works. And then it doesn't. And then what are we wrestling with? Ourself. What should I have done? What could I have done? Is there a point at which we actually do wrestle with God? I can think of a time when we wrestle with God. What if you've prayed for something and it ain't happening? Or you prayed for something and you feel like you got an answer, you followed it and it blew up in your face. What exactly does your next prayer look like? What, what, what was that? I, I paid my tithing. I did my visiting teaching. What? I've been in the nursery for ten years. Doesn't that earn me something? What? Why? We are really good people. I'm trying the best I know how to do. And what was that? So what do we end up wrestling with? Our own ourselves. Our own faith in what? In God's will. I trust Him, except that He keeps not doing it exactly the way I wish He would. I trust Him, but His timetable, He's a little slow on the uptake. If he, if my son doesn't get his act together right now, he will not get his eagle. I need the I need the repentance thing to happen fast, and and the clock's running. He'll be eighteen in six months. That's plenty of time to turn him around, turn his life around, and do the eagle project. Don't. So often, I think this is exactly right. When we wrestle, isn't our wrestle with God often about our faith in Him? 
and our faith in how He does things and how He works. There's our struggle. And, and that is a wrestle because what, what are we really wrestling? Who's really wrestling with God? We are. We are. Which part of us? The, part the, the natural man, right? The part that wants it our way. That's right. Our inner two-year-old. <laughs> it's the inner two-year-old that says, I want what I want now. And it's really a good thing. It really is. And oftentimes it really is a good thing. But we're wrestling against deity who understands the whole plan. Boy, that's a, that's a hard wrestle for us. Man, we struggle with that. I think sometimes the wrestle is finding peace with whatever God's will is. Say that again a little bit louder, Deb. Finding peace with God's will. So the wrestle isn't just necessarily like, he's doing it this way and I just have to put up with it and I'm going to be really kind of angry and upset until he finally gets around to doing it my way. As opposed to, I'm going to trust that he's doing it and I, I get peace. Which means, I'm going to trust and let it go uh, pretty lady in the back. I think that there may be a fine difference between faith and expectations. You know, are we wrestling with our faith in Him or are we wrestling with our expectations of what we may have earned because of our beginning? Wow. So does that make sense to everybody? How often are we wrestling with faith versus how often are we wrestling with expectations? Or entitlements. Or entitlements. Mm-hmm. Or entitlements. We expect that he's going to do things. <laughs> Maybe it's not faith. But we really but what we really know for sure is what we want. <laughs> And what we really, and often this is one of those times that we've talked about in the past, that we create gods of our own making. We want to create a God, not that anybody in the world would do this. Okay, they will, and we're about to talk about it. Uh, they, They create gods that will do things the way they would like it to be done. I will form God in my own image, not in His image. I don't want to be conformed to His image. I want Him conformed to my image. And I have an image of a God who will do a number of things exactly the way I think He should. Is that a wrestle? Wow. You ever sat in the celestial room in the temple and just wrestled? It looks like a quiet person sitting there, but there's really a wrestle going on to come to grips with and to find peace. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. Jimmy? Well, whenever I say my prayer, at the end of my prayer, I always say, Yeah, and we do that. He says, I always, I always, in my prayer, include, let it be thy will. And we should. And sometimes we have to really mean it. Because <laughs> we may say it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what we want. I did say it. The stamp is there. If anybody asks, I did say, Thy will be done. Remember? I did say that. But please don't let it be thy will. Let it be my will. And then, I gotta, then I'm going to wrestle with having to let it be his will. Man, that's hard. And even though things are hard and we, we feel like you know our wrestle is not in our favor, I think it, at least for me, it gives me strength for what may happen down the road. Once we have done that wrestle, as a result of wrestling, don't we get stronger? So we're actually able to handle little better wrestles as we go along. And and I do I know that the, I know Joseph Smith was talking to the the twelve when he said, "If you accept him, God will re- will shake your heart. In essence, he will wring your very heartstrings." I know I'm saying it different, but it's really true. And that wrestle will be, do I have faith in Him? Can I trust Him to do that? And even not strength, just to have more trust, a stronger faith, but just to be able to handle other roadblocks that are put in our path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Jimmy, say, say that again a little louder. That, that, that's probably better than I could have said it. <laughs> when we're wrestling with God, it's our shoulders that get pinned to the mat. <laughs> when we wrestle with God, it's our shoulders that get pinned to the mat. Yeah. 
<laughs> and the weird part about that is, we win. Isn't that crazy? We wrestle, we get pinned, and we win. That great, great, great point. Yeah. It reminds me of um, a talk by Elder Bednar where someone came to him for a priesthood blessing to be healed. And it came to Elder Bednar, the thought, to ask him, do you have the faith not to be healed? Yes. Do I have the trust? And can I, and not just the faith, but can I have peace if I'm not healed? Great point. All right, there's the wrestle. So now let's talk about what wrestling really can kind of look like. Uh, And Alma's going to be our poster child here. Okay. Oh, by the way, St. Hugh Nibley, uh, the patron saint of BYU. Wrestling with God, does God resist you? Do you have to resist Him? No, you have to put yourself in a position in the right state of mind. Remember, in our daily walks of life, as we go around doing things, we're far removed. You're not wrestling with the Lord. You're wrestling with yourself. Remember, Enos is the one who really wrestled. And he told us what it meant when he was wrestling. He was wrestling with himself, his own inadequacies. How can I possibly face the Lord in my condition, is what he says. That wrestling finds out where our strengths and weaknesses are and where we struggle. So, if uh, Hugh Nebley said it, it must be true. <laughs> so, all right. So now let's talk about uh, Al- Alma and Ammonihah. Okay, now, part of what's going to happen here is that as we, we know the story well, so let's just remind ourselves of a couple of things. He's going to, uh, he goes to Ammonihah, he wrestles, he gets kicked out. Now he's going to head down the road to Aaron. Uh, I guess if he get kicked out of Aaron, he might end up at Himni, for all we know. Um, but he, he's, he's about to leave, and then the angel comes, and the angel is going to impart to him. By the way, what, what angel is this His. that stops him? His angel. His angel. By the way, it was me. And you know, you almost stop the, you'd almost think like the angel would go, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> yeah, you're doing, you've been done pretty good since we talked last. You're doing great, man. Okay. But he says, I'm, I'm your angel. By the way, there's a problem in Ammonihah. Okay. All right, Jimmy, you ready to read? Okay, I want you to read uh, 816. They do study. Uh huh. This time. And that. Uh, they may destroy the liberty of thy people, which is contrary to the status and judgment and commandment which he has given unto his people. Okay. Barb, I've had that happen in the middle of sacrament meeting. <laughs> Isn't that fun? (laughs) Twice. Okay. So in the middle of all of this, not only are they wicked, they're kicking you out, but I need you to go back. Why? Because they study at this time that they may destroy the liberty of thy people, which is contrary to the statutes and judgments and commandments which he has given them. That got me thinking. I I tried to start then studying going, what is it that they were doing that was not only wicked, but would destroy the liberty of the people? That's that's pretty heavy charge. And he's not just talking about Ammonihah. He's talking about bringing down the entire Nephite civilization. Did it? Yes. But let's figure... I, I need you to see how that happened. We're going to get one other nod to it in Alma 10. Uh, and the foundation of the destruction of this people is is beginning to be laid by the unrighteousness of your... Lawyers and your judges. Ah, okay. So, in order to understand how this works, we need to take a step back. So, so, uh, kind of strap it on a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of Nephite history so that we understand how this works. Okay? If we start off with Father Lehi, what, what set of rules was Father Lehi working under? 
the law of Moses. That's what he knew. The Deuteronomists in in uh, Jerusalem were very strong at that time. It was just a hundred years since Josiah's reform. So it really means that we have we have chopped out and we've we've eliminated the old religion of the patriarchs, Moses, Abraham, uh, Isaac, where they had. Uh, continuous revelation from God. We have gone to the what we call the Deuteronomist, and that is we believe in the Scriptures. The authority is in the Scriptures. The power is in the Scriptures. We don't believe in ongoing revelation. It's all in the Scriptures. And in fact, we know that Deuteronomy was heavily edited by the Deuteronomist at that time to leave out references to getting ongoing revelation. Okay, So all Lehi knew when our story opens in 1 Nephi 1.1 is what, is what he's been taught. This is, so, so when he starts getting visions to come and say, I'm going to preach to you that you guys are wrong, this is called continuing revelation. This is, there are prophets in the land. And if you're a Deuteronomist, this is bad, bad. Only someone that's going to proclaim that we're that we're wicked. By the way, how do we know we're righteous? If if I'm a Deuteronomist, how do I know I'm righteous? I follow the law. How do I know that I will be saved when I die? I keep the law. How do I know that Jerusalem won't be destroyed? We keep the law. That's who we are. We can't, Jerusalem won't be destroyed because we keep the law. Because we're God's chosen people. We can't screw up because we keep the law. So for some, for Jeremiah, for Lehi, for other prophets to come into town and say, you're being wicked, well, that's, you don't understand. We're keeping the law. That's the world that Lehi steps into. Then he starts getting visions, he and Nephi, and now in addition though to the law of Moses, they are, we're going to add to that what? The doctrine of Christ. There will be a Christ. There will be a resurrection. So then what's the purpose of the law of Moses? It's, to, it's preparation to get us ready for the doctrine of Christ. If, I, if I'm a Deuteronomist, what's the purpose of the law? To, say, to save me. I will be saved by the law. I don't need a Christ. I just need the law. And just to be obedient to the law. Okay? Now, let's carry this forward then. So, by the way, Laman and Lemuel, as we've talked about before... Why were Laman and Lemuel trying to kill Lehi and Nephi? They were Deuteronomists. They were getting rid of the false prophets in their midst that were preaching against the law. That there would be a Christ, that salvation is in a being that's coming hundreds of years in the future, and salvation isn't in the law. Is that how they Well, let's t- hang on to that question, because that's, that's going to be the purview of the lawyers and the Nahors especially. How do we justify breaking one of these laws? And who gets to interpret whether we have or not? That's, that's the whole crux of where we're going. Yeah. Is that also how terrorists operate? They're operating by the law? Yeah, I'm, I'm obeying the law. And but, uh, but, but again, who interprets the law is the key here. Right. That's where we're going to end up in. And in Ammonihah, it is critical and it results in the death of hundreds and hundreds of people based on who gets to interpret what the law means. Right. Prophets with ongoing revelation or whoever is smartest getting to interpret the law. That's the whole that is the whole thing here. Does that make sense? Okay. Alright. So now let's roll forward. Then we get the Nephite Dark Ages. Everything kind of falls apart. We don't know a lot of what happens in the Nephite Dark Ages, that, that uh, about 350 year span, uh, where we get some kind of apostate law of Moses, where it was somehow mixing, I think, with the Mayan civilization around it. There's a mix there. Um, but there, but uh, in some form, it survives. Then, then along comes King Benjamin. What does King Benjamin know? What what are the rules of their society? 
There are five laws, and they are based on what he gets. It takes an angel to restore. Remember, King Benjamin is a restoration. What happens under his father and King Benjamin is as big a restoration as Joseph Smith was in the early days of this church. It had to be brought back. It had to be restored. And when the Lord wants to restore something, who does the restoring? Angels. Angels bring it to prophets. And that's why King Benjamin will get an angel. And what doctrine is the angel preaching? The doctrine of Christ. It's what he does. Now, does that eliminate the law of Moses? No. Because the law of Moses is yet to be fulfilled. So, now they're living, this is this unique little period of time where you have a group of people that aren't just living the law of Moses, but they're also understanding the doctrine of Christ and the purpose of the law of Moses. It's a very nice, yeah, very nice thing to do. I've, if, if I could change our church at all, it would probably be to add a lot of some of the old law of Moses stuff because it's wonderful, beautiful symbolism for why it is to teach us about the doctrine of Christ. What a wonderful synergism between these two. The, the Dark Ages is when you're going through uh, Omni and, and Jeremiah. I mean, you get all of these, um, th- this long period of time between Jacob and after Enos, and then you get to Mosiah 1. And you get, and if you look at it, there's, there's several hundred years of span in there. Um, and then they come down, out, down into Zarahemla and find the Mulekites. We don't know exactly what they believed. We know that it it had gone apostate enough that it took angels to restore the real stuff that Jacob had and Nephi had, but it took an angel to bring back what they'd had anciently. And apparently they weren't reading it because they had to be retaught. Okay? All right. So now we have King Benjamin. And who set... So under King Benjamin, who sets the rules of the land? Who determines what is right, what is wrong, and administers justice? The king. So now, because we have Nephite kings. So King Benjamin is going to then roll it off to who? King Mosiah. Okay? The kings are the ones who, who tell you what the rules are. But they're righteous kings, so they're looking to the doctrine of Christ to be the rules. Does that make sense? Except that when King Mosiah gets ready to die, what does he do? Yeah. So, what's going to happen when we get Alma? Oh, before we get to King Mosiah. So, in the middle of all of this, who shows up? Alma does. What does Alma have that King Benjamin didn't have? The church. The church. To organize a church, to baptize people into the church. He, he now creates a church, and this church gets to run alongside the law of Moses. Well, this is awesome. But the king is still setting the rules. And he's saying, obey. Now, when King Bent Mosiah gets ready to then die, he's going to change the affairs. He wants to go away from kings and go to judges. In the, in the old days, the Lord set up a system under the law of Moses. Did he set it up with kings or judges? judges? Judges. And then they wanted a king so they could be like everybody else. Israel did. In this case, he's going, we have been kings. Remember that King Noah guy? Didn't work out well. Let's go to judges. Now, okay, so this is kind of important. Under the law of Mosiah... So we go. For, so we have the law of Moses under the law of Mosiah. Nice. Okay. What is the civil law? I'm going to change the rules. What governs our day-to-day actions, whether you are a member of the church or not? What law are they going to hold you to? Ah, the law of Moses. Moses, absolutely. Because not only do we have the church of Christ, but now we have the law of Moses, civil law. Does the law of Moses show you what to do if somebody's caught under adultery? 
Does the law of Moses show you what to do what happens if someone steals? Does the law of Moses have things telling you about slavery, about uh, debt, about all kinds of things? The law of Moses is a self-contained civil law. And all he's saying, we're, gonna, we're going to now vote for and appoint judges who will help administer what? The civil law, which is the law of Moses. And where are we going to find that civil law? Is it in case law and books of jurisprudence? No, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the brass plates. The judges are interpreting the scripture for civil law. Now, do you have to be a member of the Church of Christ? No, you don't. But do you have to live by the civil law of Moses? Yes. That is the that is the law of society. Question so far. Does this make sense? Okay, I don't want to make this too academic, but I need you to see what Alma is walking right into the middle of and why they did exactly what they did and how they did it. Okay? So we're on board so far? Okay, now... Now, in the middle of all this, so almost in the very first year, so congratulations, we now have no more kings, we've appointed a judge, the people vote. Who do they vote for? As their chief judge. Alma. Alma. We like Alma the Younger. He's a good guy, and he used to be kind of a crud, but now he's got his life turned around, and he's, he's really a good guy. We like Alma. And so he's going to be our chief judge. And, and the pro, who's going to be also, who's the prophet of the Church of Christ? Yes, Alma. And so there's this, this we don't have kings, but we got Alma in both positions. So for a, a short period of time, for about nine years, they, they will combine, they will still be combined under the same person. Okay? Now. That lasts until... Let's hop for a second back over. Let's remind ourselves. I want to go back to... Um, go with me to Alma 1 for a second. Okay, Alma 1. In the first year of the reign of the judges, over the people of Nephi, King Mosiah is gone... Uh, they were obliged to the bottom of the verse to abide by the laws which he had made which was follow the law of Moses and it came to pass in the first year of the reign of Alma in the judgment seat as the chief judge there was a man brought before him uh, to be judged he was a large man look at verse 3 he had gone about the people preaching to them what he termed to be what? The Word of God. He has an alternate religion that he's bringing into the land. Is he of the Church of Christ? No. What's his name? Nahor. This is Nahor. Okay? Declaring that every priest uh, ought to be popular. Mankind should be saved at the last day. Uh, for he's created all men, uh, he's redeemed all men, and the all, all men should have eternal life. Why? Why should they have eternal life? What what right would they have to claim eternal life if they're living the law of Moses? What? Saved. You're saved. They are Deuteronomous. If you're living the law, you're saved. We don't have to trust in a Christ down the road, in resurrection. You're saved because you're living the law of Moses. So that means you're free to be as rich as you want to be rich. You get to be popular. Okay? Now, all man could be saved. Uh, verse 6, he even began to establish a church after the manner of his preaching. Everybody gets to be rich. Yay, that's awesome. Just live the law of Moses, and then we'll figure out how to interpret the law of Moses. Okay? Now, what happens though, verse 8, a man by, by the name of Gideon comes along. Gideon is like the, the champion of the Limhi people, and he's going to say, no, you're wrong. And what, is, what does Nahor do? Kills him. Kills him. Okay? So not only is he going to establish a church... 
but he's going to try and enforce it by the sword. I cannot tolerate another opinion. And we'll talk and hang on to that idea because it, it, it's what happens to Alma. Not only is this Nahor church is going to be believed in salvation for everybody, but we cannot have alternate uh, opinions about things. The church of Christ is an impediment to us, and you have to eliminate them. That's hate speech. Okay? All right. And we know what happens. This is Nahor, then he's going to be killed. Because he slay, he slayed, he done slewed Gideon. So here is, so here's Alma, and he's suddenly walking into Ammonihah. And what's the state religion in? First of all, what's the civil law in Ammonihah? Law of Moses. What's the religion in Ammonihah? Nahorism. This is a city full of Nahors. Okay, so the the civil law is the law of Moses. Now watch what happens when you take Nahor's religion, and this is nine years later. Nine years after the death of Nahor, this city has been established. They're building it up completely on the principle of Nahorism. How does that work? Well, the rule of law gets suspended. And it has a whole different set of lawyers, and they're going to preach by gain, and it has to be done by force, because that's how Nahorism works. Okay? Um, let's see, how do we want to do this? Um, let me give you an example of, of how one of the reasons there's a problem. If you go to back in uh, Ephesus, when Paul shows up into Ephesus, uh, the most magnificent uh, uh, structure in all of Ephesus, beautiful city, but one of the seven ancient wonders of the world was the Temple of Artemis. Uh, if you're in, uh, if next time you're in Istanbul and you go in the Hagia Sophia, you can see some of the original pillars from the Temple of Artemis in the in the Hagia Sophia. Um, and they're massive. It was an incredibly huge, ornate building. But but it was built on Artemis or Diana. And what would happen is is that people, part of the cottage industry in in Ephesus, was the making of these figurines. That's that's one of the figurines in Ephesus of Diana. And by the way, she's got multiple breasts there because she's a, very much a fertility god. It's all about fertility. In fact, there were statues of that, but it, as fountains, and then there would be a stream of water from every breast. I mean, you know, it's kind of an ornate kind of thing. So when, so when Paul comes into town preaching the doctrine of Christ, who's upset with Paul? The statue makers. Because if they're going to, if they're going to obey the doctrine of Christ, it puts them out of business. Okay, so there, when, when, the, when the thing is built on gain, then the problem is, is that the doctrine of Christ is a threat. That's the problem. Okay? Uh, Alright, before I go there, let, let me hop over here to... Uh, so... Let's hop over for a second to Alma 10. Alright, so we're in Alma 10. So, so before I hit Alma 10 too much, let me give you one more piece of background here. I know I'm just dumping lots of doctrinal stuff on you, and then you're going to go, wow, let's have a great family home evening tonight. <laughs> I have no idea what Hinckley was going on about, but it was kind of fascinating. <laughs> okay, now, every week is kind of that way. <laughs> I'm glad I can serve. Yes, that would be helpful. Okay, now, here, here I said, we talked about the crux of the problem, here, and here it is. Under the old-time religion, if, the, if you have a piece of Scripture in front of you, as Latter-day Saints, how do we know how to interpret that Scripture? 
It was written by a prophet anciently. It's in our book. How do we know how to what that scripture means and what it means to us and what we're supposed to now do as a result of that scripture? Through the Holy Ghost. Through the Holy Ghost and modern day. What about next weekend? We have prophets. We have modern prophets who tell here's a piece of scripture. Let me tell you what that means as given to us by the the Spirit. There's ongoing revelation to help us interpret Scripture. And in the case of Joseph Smith, we might even create new Scripture. If God is speaking to us, a prophet can write it down and say, Thus saith the Lord, and there it is. Okay? Now, watch how this little wrinkle goes. In Ammonihah, do they believe in ongoing revelation? Do they believe in a doctrine of Christ? What is the civil law? The law of Moses. It is Scripture. Who is interpreting the Scripture in Ammonihah? The lawyers are. The lawyers are interpreting Scripture. How do we know what, and when, when would a lawyer, a lawer, the creator of law, when would a lawyer be interpreting scripture? At trial. See, this goes, this goes back a long ways. The, the, anybody know where, where lawyers first showed up from? And no disparaging remarks. We have. <laughs> Ancient Greece. When ancient Greece set up rules and laws in their city-states and people would have to stand before a tribunal or judges to, to answer for things that they did wrong, eventually they got to where it's like, we don't know really what, how to handle this and I'm not very vocal. So they would start reaching out to their friends and their friends were called orators. And the orators were very good in, in speech, in, uh, in rhetoric, in sophistry. And so I'm going to get my really smart friend, my orator friend, to go with me to court, and you're going to plead my case because I'm not very verbal. So you're smart, you're really good, so you get to plead my case. In ancient Rome, they did the same thing. These orators stepped up and were the same kind of thing. We will plead your case in court. Now, but here's the deal. We're interpreting Scripture. We're interpreting Scripture. How are we going to interpret Scripture? In the way what? In the way that it benefits who? Well, the lawyer, and he's trying to do it in the benefit of whoever's on trial. I will tell you what the law means based on what you did, what we're trying to get you out of, and based on how good an orator I really am. And if I'm really, really good at getting people off, getting the, finding the loopholes in the law of Moses so that you've done the stuff, but I keep getting you off. For me, you better be done. Yeah. Then I'm going to be really good. So if I'm really, really good, what does that mean? Get more money. I make more money. So the really good ones make lots of money, and the only way to make lots of money is to get lots of people off. And what are we interpreting? The scripture. So it's all based on the lawyers being able to find and exploit the loopholes to be able to get the people off based on what, what you did, how we're going to interpret it. Wow. That's how, that's, instead of having prophets, we're now arguing scripture in a court of law with a goal towards you never have to have a consequence. My goal is to get you off every time. And if I'm really good, I'm worth my weight in gold literally. Okay? Now, so, so listen to what Alma, this is what, as Amulek starts to preach here. Um, and Jody, I think you're going to probably start with 10 and maybe into 11. That's probably where you're going to end up. Um, nevertheless, there were some among them who thought to question them that by their cunning devices they might catch them in their words, that they might find witness against them, that they might deliver them to their judges, that they might be judged according to the law. But it was the law as interpreted by the lawyers. Okay? 
uh, and that they might be slain or cast into prison against the crime that would um, would make uh, appear or witness against them. And it was those men who sought to destroy them who were the lawyers who were hired and appointed by the people. Okay, Why would people be appointing people to uh, attorneys to fight Alma and Amulek? Because they speak well. They, well, but, but what is it that what Alma and Amulek were saying to them? The truth. They want the truth? You can't handle the truth. <laughs> okay? So they don't want to hear the truth, so who are they going to appoint? Lawyers to say, we're really not bad people. We're really not, and they're saying mean things to us, and there's no safe spaces here. So let's get the attorneys in here to argue and, and convince the judges of what? Who are the bad people? Oh, okay. Let's go back to... Um, let, let me show you how this works. Alma 9. So Alma, after he spent time with Amulek, um, having been commanded, I should take Amulek and go forth and preach. Uh, I... It came to pass that I began to preach unto them. They began to contend with me. Look at verse 2. Who art thou? Suppose ye that we should believe in the testimony of one man? Under the law of Moses, is there a problem of one man's testimony? I've, I've tied in. You won't won't have to flip anywhere. Look at Deuteronomy 18, or 19. And the judges shall make diligent diligent inquisition. And if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, verse 19, then ye shall do unto him as he thought to have done unto his brother. So shall thou put the evil away from among you. That's the law of Moses. You need to have... Two witnesses. But what if one of the witnesses is bearing false witness? He says we're wicked and we're really not. He's lying about us. What would happen if if he's bearing if Alma is bearing false witness? What's the problem? Yeah. It says in verse 19, Thou shalt put the evil away from among them. If Alma is bearing false witness, and he's the only witness, and he's false, you can kill him. If you want to stretch this, and the lawyers would do it, you can have him killed. Okay? Now, let me just mention one last thing along with in conjunction with this. Let's just re, let's just remind ourselves something we just talked about. Uh, we talk about um, Christ as being the finisher of our faith. He's the founder and finisher of our faith. Okay, who is the founder and finisher of the Nahor religion? Nahor. Who put him to death? He killed Gideon. Who put who put the, the finisher of their faith, the Nahors, who put him to death? Alma, Alma did. Alma. This is nine years later. Think they remember? Oh, yeah. Think they would really like to find a way under the law to bump off Alma. Think there's still feelings about Alma? Oh, man. Oh, a lot of feelings there. Okay. So, who art thou? So, so uh, suppose ye shall believe in the testimony of one man. Um, verse 4, they also said, We will not believe thy words that shall prophesy against this great city. In other words, we need to have, according to the law of Moses, and these attorneys would be making sure that this happens, you cannot bear false witness, and not only that, you need a second witness if you're going to bear testimony against us. 
Why do you think Alma needed Amulek? A second witness. Okay, now, let me ask you, attorneys of Nahor. If I've got... Uh, aha. That should be good on the on the recording, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. If I have the bar association uh, of Nahor attorneys in front of me here, we have Alma and Amulek, the guy who killed Nahor and a traitor in our midst, that are right now preaching against all of our clients, saying they're really wicked and they're really bad. Okay, attorneys of Nahor, how do we get our people off the hook? How do we... And they, and they will actually pay us a lot of money if we can get rid of these guys. How do we do it? Interpret Scripture. We're gonna, so we've got to interpret Scripture in a way that gets our people off the hook. And, and the Scripture that we're interpreting is the Law of Moses. How do we discredit them? There you go. Absolutely. What we have to do, according to the law of Moses, is prove that you're lying. Because then we get it. This is a twofer. We get two things that happen. One, if I, if we can prove that Alma and Amulek are lying, not only do we get our people off the hook, but we can kill them. We can enforce it by the sword. Or throw you in jail. Yeah, or at least, at the very least, throw them in jail. We can throw them in prison. In either case, we win and they will pay us handsomely for this. So we have to discredit the, the, the ones who are saying it. By the way, these days, if someone wants to attack the church virulently, who are they going after? Uh, the modern church. Prophet. Prophet Joseph Smith. If we can discredit the prophet Joseph Smith and make him into a, a liar or philanderer or something like that, then we undercut the whole thing. And that's what they're doing. It's the same, it's the same thing. Same process. Okay? Alright. So that means then that we're going to... We, we've got to discredit these guys. Now the problem here is going to be... If we hop over back to Alma uh, 10, these are the words of Amulek. So Alma gets done, Amulek stands up, I'm the son of uh, Gadana, who is this guy, here's who I am, I'm of no small reputation, um, and he's going on and on, he tells the whole story. Um, now look at verse 12. So Jody, you'll actually, you could actually go back and hit that next week if you want to. Um, Verse 12, And when Amulek had spoken these words, the people began to astonish. There was more than one witness. <sighs> well, now we got two, so we've got to attack these guys. So everything that now comes with Zeezrom and everything that now comes in the next few chapters are all about discrediting the two witnesses so that you can get rid of them and get us off the hook. That's, that's what this whole section of Ammonihah is about. We have to use the law against them and put Alma and Amulek on trial. That's why we're going to do what we're going to do. That's when we're going to start parsing words. Eventually, Alma and Amulek will be found guilty of lying. What were they lying about? Well, did he say that the people would be saved in their sins or from their sins? What is the definition of is, is? <laughs> Is it in the sins or of the sins? I don't know. We think it. And then, amazingly, they're going to have a lot of people bear false witness to say that they did it. So we're also going to suspend the rule of law. Yeah, we think he said in the sins. And that's kind of impossible. He bore false witness. Kick him out of town and kill the women and children. There's a discussion for next time. Why would they then jump to that conclusion? And I'm not going to try and answer that today. Okay? All right. So again, that's why 
There were some that were going to question them by their cunning devices. They might catch them in their words, that they might find witness against them, that they might deliver them to the law, that they might be judged according to the law. It's how they interpret Scripture. Okay, now, with this then, I've gone through all of this. Why is this, why is this applicable to us today? Because you always look at this and go, okay, wonderful history story, Hinckley, nice, but does that really apply to us today? Where's the application to everything we just described? Does this apply? I will be totally shocked if we don't hear this in general conference next week. And by the way, did I tell you I'll be sitting on the beach at Laguna Beach listening to conference? Yes. I, I forget, did I forget to bring that up? Yes. Okay. But I will be listening. I'm hearing discouraging words about mentioning it again. Okay. That is the lagoon in Kaysville, right? Yeah, it is lagoon. Yeah, that's right. It's the lagoon in Kaysville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's. let's. <laughs> Elder Oaks, a couple of weeks ago here now. Some public policy advocates have attempted to intimidate persons with religious-based belief, points of view, from influencing or making laws in our democracy. Some, are, some of these characterize the free exercise of religion as protecting no more than the privilege of worshiping in protected space of ch- homes, churches, synagogues, or mosques. These arguments leave me wondering why any group of citizens with secular-based views are free to seek to persuade or impose their views on others by a democratic lawmaking process, but persons or organizations with religious-based views are not free to participate in the same democratic lawmaking process. Say that in different words. What, what is, this, is, this is Elder Oaks speak. This is, a, this is an, a former Supreme Court attorney. What is it that he's basically saying? We're changing to that name or system where it's by force. It is by force. And what are we forcing? Their, their view and I cannot tolerate your view. We're not able to believe in the plan of salvation. Well, you can have it inside your head, just don't say it out loud. Although lately, hate speech is crossing over to what people might think. Because we're actually trying to stamp that out as well. But it, it needs to be the way that we see it. Yeah. It, it was so amazing to me, to, kind of a unusual uh, opposite of what we're talking about, when uh, in the schools they added in God we trust to the text allegiance because it had been so much the opposite you know you can't call it Christmas vacation and all of this and it just thrilled me that that they did that we're trying to push back but it but it is it is one kind of little one battle in a whole range of we're just watching this sweep uh, Marlo and I were talking this morning you, you want to mention that about Canada less than two weeks ago a judge had some liars in Canada successfully argued that the civil courts can review the decisions of courts and religious organizations. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how far that will be taken to their Supreme Court, how far that would extend, but that gives you a perfect idea of what we're talking about, which is civil law ought to have control over these kind of things. And, and I believe that part of the root will that will maybe, as we're worried about the effect of maybe Sharia law or something being imposed, one of the ways to protect ourselves against that as a society is that we're going to not let any religious organization have any kind of courts. We'll just make a blanket law across the board. Because, you know, those religious people are kind of nuts. And we need to be protected from them. Okay? And we're going to... And and who's going to interpret religious law? The lawyers. The lawyers. And the lawyers are going to be arguing in front of the judges. Are we back to to Nahorism? Yeah. 
There's the fri- That's why this becomes incredibly relevant when we even talk about the laughable. Given the read the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then go, why are we talking about religious liberty? That's that should be redundant. It, it's, those are all guaranteed, but the fact that we're having to fight for and and organize and be able to speak up for religious liberty is about saying, let's talk about whether you have the right to breathe air, whether that's even okay. We're talking about unalienable rights. So, um, we should all understand that if one voice can be stilled, every other voice is potentially at risk of being silenced by a new majority that finds other arguments too bigoted or hateful for the public square. That's, that's why you're going to have these discussions and it's going to begin to be a bigger and bigger deal. Okay? And I think it has, and we're watching history repeat itself all over. You see why it is that President Benson used to say, if you want to know what's going to happen in the last days, read the Book of Mormon. Because here it is. Comments on, on any of that? I mean, I don't want to belabor it. I don't want to make this a big political discussion, but we just need to see the overarching problem. I, I remember Elder Owens a word that I really like, the censorship. Yeah, the censorship. Yes, and that's um, something really... And the censorship means I don't like what you're saying. Um, And that's why I was reading an interesting discussion online um, about the the struggle that so many have as they're leaving the church. That, you know, Joseph Smith's words always ring true that says, you can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. There is a sense of, I I don't like the church, I just walk away and not talk about it anymore. But it, it brings up such a conflicting set of emotions and feelings. So the way to make sure that I don't have my feelings bruised is, uh, as I talk to some spouses who've, whose uh, partner has left the church, they don't want to hear it in no discussion about the church in the house. I don't want you reading the scriptures. I don't want you to bring it up. I don't, you don't want you to watch conference. It's like, I, I don't want to be offended by having to hear something I don't want to hear. Well, that's, that's a struggle. And that's kind of where we're going. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of other things we could have really good stuff here. Okay. I want to finish with this if I can. Wonderful old picture, General Conference. First presidency at the time voting. Okay, cool. Let's finish with Alma 8. Let's, let's, like I say, let's finish with this. The story that we have tells us that Alma, uh, when he is thrown out of Ammonihah, and the angel has him come back, and he comes in another way, and he comes speedily. If I had more time, we'd talk about returning speedily to uh, Ammonihah and coming another way. I will approach it a different way, but I'll go quickly, promptly. Then he's going to run into Amulek, uh, 19. He entered the city. He was hungered. He said to a man, Will you give a humble servant of God something to eat? 20. The man said unto him, I am a Nephite. I know thou art a prophet of God. Now listen to what Amulek knew. Thou art the man whom an angel said to me in vision. Listen to what the angel tells him. Thou shalt receive. Therefore go with me into my house. I will impart unto thee of my food. I know that thou wilt be a blessing unto me and my house. Do we have a chance this next weekend to receive prophets into our house? In what way... Real quickly, this may sound kind of elementary. In what way are prophets a blessing to our house? If we invite them in, which in modern day simply means click on the computer, turn on the TV. Unless you've got Frontier, then click on the computer. (laughs) What kind of blessings are prophets? What happens when we allow prophets into our house? You allow the truth in our house. So we now we have the truth in our house. What else? They always are a step ahead of me. They always 
about what about what's coming down the road. Yeah, so they're going to tell you that they're going to bless you, they're going to tell you what's coming. That's a blessing. They tell us God's will for us. They tell us God's will. Tell us how to be happy. They're going to show us what happiness will look like. Do this and this and this as a way to be happy. They will. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I was just, something just hit me with that line. I was just saying, it said, I know that that will be a blessing to me in my house. Amulek says this. What, five chapters later? Now that how, yeah, how did that work out for Amulek? <laughs> and so sometimes we really have, I mean, just because, yes, there are problems, and yes, we're going to hear Thank you. I think that is just critical. Listen, we look at it and go, okay, if we follow a prophet and we let him into our house, he's going to be a blessing to us. That's wonderful. Except for the fact that along with the truth and knowing what's coming in the future and all the great things that are going to happen with that, there is a danger. Prophets are danger to us. They may tell us to do things we don't want to do. They may make us look weird in the eyes of the people in our neighborhood. They may make us look weird if we have to stand up in a PTA meeting and declare something to be true. They may make us look weird if we have to say to somebody, stop, I don't want to hear that joke, or that's offensive to me. For the, the, for the people in Nauvoo or Missouri or Kirtland that listened to a prophet, it meant that they had to move. Inviting a prophet into your house is an incredibly mixed bag. There are peace, there are blessings, there are knowing what's coming. But also inviting a prophet into your house means wrestling with the fact that you may be asked to do things that are maybe uncomfortable. And especially for our youth. I think we need to be saying loud and long to our youth, accepting a prophet into your life means that you will be different from the other kids at school. That you will not be doing on prom night the same thing that everybody else is doing. That at homecoming your dress may look different. That you will be different. And that sometimes people are going to make fun of you. Are we ready for that? Accepting a prophet, like Joseph Smith said, you pick up one end of the stick, you pick up the other. Where there's a whole package that we, that we accept, and we accept prophets into our life. And the question is, are we ready for that? I think we just have to keep in mind that, that it strengthens us as people, individually and as a group. For, for all the things he's going to require of us, we are going to be strengthened. He will build us up to enable to prepare it. But that still means we have to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous attorneys who are going to be slinging stuff at us. And it's coming. Yeah, but then you can be there to see them get theirs. <laughs> Eventually they will get there, yeah. Um, I bear you my testimony. These are, what we're reading here in Ammonihah, this is us. You're, you're, this, this ought to be so relevant to us, right at the moment of talking about religious liberty. You want a great family home evening? Here we are. You want to talk about why it is that we're doing what we're doing for our kids and for us? Here we are. This, this is, tells us the background why. I bear you my testimony that this stuff is is true and relevant to us today. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.